0: Uh, it's probably the the greatest amount of space that Paul has given to uh, any one topic in this letter and it may seem a bit odd maybe to you that he's waited until this point to write towards the end of his letter uh, to remind the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached to them. As he said, I will remind you of uh, the gospel that you've heard. It's the last big issue that he deals with. Uh, he's dealt with leadership divisions, with sexual immorality, with lawsuits, with marriage breakdowns, with uh, compromising with pagan religions, uh, eating meat offered to idols, clashes between men and women, abuse of holy communion and a wrong understanding of how the spirit works. So only now does he come to this uh central doctrinal issue of the resurrection. But I think he's left it to last because in a way this is a doctrine that has an impact on all of the other issues that he's written about. What we believe about the resurrection will believe, will shape the way we we view life and the way we live life. It will determine what we do with our bodies, how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world and how we go about our worship together. As we'll see in a moment, the the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are one package. The cross would have no power if it wasn't followed by the resurrection. The resurrection is on the basis of the cross. It's because of Jesus' humble obedience to the Father in going to the cross that he was raised up and given the kingdom. Now we heard at the beginning of this letter, Christ crucified is the power and the wisdom of God for those who are called. The resurrection of Jesus is the display of this wisdom and power. We call him the risen Christ. Christ that automatically implies he was the crucified Christ. So just as, as we've been seen all the way through this letter, uh, we've been called back to the cross to gain wisdom for life. And here we are called to see that the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that all of the benefits that the cross accomplished for us are assured for us who believe. Verses 3 and 4 are thought to be one of the earliest Christian creeds. It predates the Nicene Creed that we recited this morning by over 300 years. They're not actually Paul's own words, but most likely... It's probably that he's simply reciting words that the Corinthians may well have said together every time they met. Now notice how he says, uh, Christ died for our sins. He doesn't say Jesus died for our sins or even Jesus Christ died for our sins. Remember Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's his title. He is Jesus the Christ. Uh, Have you noticed how often in the Gospels Jesus talks about himself in the third person? For example, he said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Or another example, and he began to teach them that, The Son of Man may suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Today if someone talks about themselves in the third person, we think they're a bit odd or maybe that they have a self-inflated view of themselves. But Jesus isn't speaking in that way. He's showing his disciples as we saw in that first passage, he's showing them that the scriptures had already taught that the Son of Man or the Christ when he comes to establish the kingdom would also be the suffering servant who would die to atone for the sins of God's people. As the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ this meant that Jesus the man who is the Christ would then follow that path of death and resurrection. So when Paul says Christ died for our sins, he's saying much more than just the historical events that happened on Good Friday when the man, Jesus of Nazareth, died for our sins. These words encompass the whole of the Old Testament Right from Genesis 3, when God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that's a promise of the Christ, or the Son of Man, right through to the last chapter of the Old Testament, in Malachi, when he promised the day of the Lord. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. In between Genesis 3 and Malachi chapter 4 there are at least 350 Prophecies that found their fulfilment in Jesus. Not to mention all of the other types and illusions and shadows. So that's why uh, Paul uses this phrase twice according to the scriptures here. This isn't a new thing invented by Paul and the apostles. All that Jesus said and did was in accordance with what was already written. The Gospel begins with the fact that Jesus is the Christ. It begins with his identity and it continues not only with the fact of his death but with the significance of his death. He didn't just die, he died for our sins. His death was like no other death because it was an atoning death. Jesus' death as an atonement, it echoes right through the New Testament. 1 Peter 3 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Galatians 3 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Hebrews 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There are many things that Jesus' death accomplishes. It displays the love of God for us. It gives us an example of what it looks like to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator when we suffer. It demonstrates the kind of love for neighbour that we are called to. It exposes all the corrupt and evil human systems. Now you may hear people talking about one of those things and lifting it up to make it the central reason or accomplishment of the cross, but those things are not the primary reason why Jesus died. They're not, to to use the language of 1 Corinthians 15, they are not things of first importance. Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus bore the, bore the penalty for our sin as our substitute in order to bring atonement, to reconcile us to God. That is the, the centre of the cross and everything else that the cross accomplishes, all those things I mentioned, flow from that. So if we don't have penal substitution atonement, we actually don't have any of those other things. Verse 4 then makes a deliberate point. He was buried. Now you may not have thought of Jesus' burial as something of first importance. All four Gospels devote space to the account of Jesus' burial in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. It's an important part of the story. The Jews buried their dead in tombs wrapped in clothes, in cloths, anointed with oil and spices. They didn't put their dead in a hole in the ground to be covered with soil. The worst case scenario for a Jew was to be lost at sea because then their body and their bones will never be retrieved. They'll never receive a proper burial. Now this burial practice of the Jews Reflected their resurrection hope. They knew that even though at death their bodies returned to the dust from which they're made, that they wouldn't be disintegrated and lost forever. They, the day would come when God would reconstitute the dust and reform their bodies again and breathe into them again the breath of life. So making the point that Jesus was buried is em- emphasizing the fact not only that he was truly and soundly dead, but that his death was physical, and therefore his resurrection would be physical. Without his body being raised, it's not resurrection. The Greeks believe that after death, the body is no longer needed that we continue to exist in purely spiritual form. So this idea of resurrection, that our physical body actually matters, that our body will be clothed with immortality and made to live forever, that was foolishness to them. They had no concept of God creating the physical universe and saying it is good. So Jesus' burial makes... His work of atonement, something that's firmly grounded, literally grounded in this creation. And it means that it's not only the souls of human beings that he saves, but our bodies and along with our bodies, the whole of creation. The resurrection of Jesus ties this all together. A dead Christ who stays dead, obviously can't fulfil his role as the shepherd king who gathers people from every corner of the earth. There'd be no guarantee that our sins are atoned for because if death is the wages of sin, to remain dead would mean that he remained under judgement for his sins or for our sins. So the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is central to the Gospel. It's the thing on which the Gospel stands or falls. Without the resurrection, Jesus would simply be Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus the Christ. Peter said to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this jesus whom you crucified jesus resurrection is the capstone on his identity as the messiah without being raised he would neither be lord nor christ so we saw back in 1 corinthians 123 paul says we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to the gentiles We could rephrase that to say we preach a crucified Christ or we preach the same Christ that Jesus preached, the one that would go to the cross for sin. We've heard how this was was foolishness to the Greeks, this idea of bodily resurrection, but it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they were deeply offended at the thought that their promised king and messiah could be killed. If he was anointed by God, they reasoned, then God would never let him suffer or die. So it was foolishness to the Greeks, because they didn't see how there could be any redemptive value in a physical bodily suffering, and it was a stumbling block to the Jews because it was offensive to them. Now the Corinthians had been influenced then um, maybe a little bit by some of the Jews, maybe the Sadducees and their teaching that there's no resurrection had crept in there but primarily they'd been influenced by that Greek thinking and it's the Greek thinking that most shapes the thinking of people today. If you ask the average person if they believe in an afterlife they'll normally describe some kind of spiritual experience. Maybe, maybe a, the popular distortion of the Christian view with pearly gates in the clouds, living like angels with wings and playing harps in a, a spiritual, otherworldly kind of hev- place called heaven. Well, our hope is much more solid than that. It's grounded in the promise of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection and the new creation which has been guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. For those of you who are attending The Authentic Life, I'll give you a sneak preview of a a diagram that I'll be using this coming Friday uh, to talk about these views of the afterlife In the popular Greek influence view, there at the top, the view is there are two stages to existence. There's the physical, this life, then after death there's a spiritual afterlife. The biblical view on the bottom is quite different. All of us are actually already dead in Adam. And our bodily death will be uh, an outward expression of what's already that reality. True life begins in Christ. And whatever point in time on this side of the grave that the Father draws us to Jesus and the Holy Spirit enables us to put our trust in Him, uh, that's when life, eternal life, begins. So what we look forward to now as Christians isn't death or an afterlife, it's resurrection. That's our future hope, resurrection to immortality. And for the person who doesn't believe, they simply remain in that state of death in which they've always been, in Adam, separated from the life of God. And for them, the grave is the final confirmation of this state after that there will be no more opportunity no more grace no more chance to repent for us the grave is no longer a hurdle or a barrier it's not a sign that we are under condemnation for our sin it's not something to be feared or to be shrunk from for us the grave has been transformed so look at what verse 42 and to 44 says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, us. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The physical death of a Christian is likened to planting a seed in the ground in hope. When we plant seeds in our veggie garden, we put a seed in the hole, we cover it up, then there's a time of waiting, of being patient. When we have to trust God that he's doing the work of germinating the seed and then eventually new life springs from the ground and has transformed that Quite boring, not so glorious, tiny seed into a glorious plant, a fruitful plant. So, we who have hope in God for the resurrection of the dead are to see the grave not as a dark devourer, but something that we can willingly embrace when it comes. Geoffrey Bingham wrote. The penalty of sin has been borne, the evil of sin has been expended, the power of sin has been broken and the pollution of sin has been expunged. All the elements of death then have been banished. We are confident that death's fear is removed, its indignity destroyed and that life is known and views of immortality are breaking upon the eyes of the redeemed. The spiritual body in verse 44 there is in contrast to the natural body and this isn't a contrast between uh, physical and non-physical but between the two forces that empower and drive our physical bodies. A natural body is one that's controlled by our desires and our affections, our appetites that are tainted by sin and are essentially self-seeking. It's a body that wants to get from the creation those things that only the creator can give us. It's a body like Eve who thought she could get wisdom from eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A spiritual body, on the other hand, is a body that's controlled by the spirit Not our spirit, but by God, the Holy Spirit. It's a body that is a temple of the Holy Spirit, filled and empowered to live for the glory of God. Now we know and we experience something of that in this life now, in the present, as we know the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit among us, as we've been seen over the last few weeks. The gifts that the Spirit gives us today are preparing us for the day when we'll know the the full unhindered power and presence of the Spirit as we see Jesus in our resurrected bodies. What we know now of the Spirit's work is is partial, it's a foretaste of the fullness that is to come. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, not and not only the creation but we ourselves who have been given the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the resurrection of our bodies. We know now that we are adopted children of God. That's our legal status before God in Christ. But we haven't yet moved into our new home. We're waiting for Jesus as we had earlier in the service, we we're waiting for Jesus to come back to take us to be with Him so that we may also be where He is. That'll happen at the resurrection or what this verse calls the redemption of our bodies. For, uh, for my birthday this year, I was given by a family member a Bunnings voucher. That meant I had a guarantee that I could walk into any Bunnings store, choose any item up to the amount on the voucher, and it would be mine. Theoretically, I already owned that item because Bunnings already had the money for it. The payment had already been made. All I needed to do was go into the store and redeem it. The resurrection of our bodies will be the redemption of all that's been purchased for us by Christ, all that's rightfully ours as children of God. And all that's ours in Christ is so great, it's so glorious, so weighty, that we'll need a resurrected body clothed in immortality that's robust enough to bear the full weight of glory that we'll receive our glory then as god's children will be so glorious that it will bring about the renewal of the whole creation. Romans 8:21 says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god. See that we we won't be participating in the glory of the new creation the new creation will be participating in our glory. Just as the death of Adam brought about a curse that spread to the grounds and to all of creation, so our resurrection in Christ, the last Adam, will bring about blessing that will spread and renew all of creation. I recently listened to a sermon from a popular TV preacher. Uh, I listen to him once a year just to see if he talks about Jesus or not. It was entitled, Your Destiny Outweighs Your History. The blurb said, uh, What God has prepared for your future is greater than anything you've faced in your past. He's not only going to bring you out of the opposition, he's going to bring you out better than you were before. Now that's true, but then when he got into his sermon, all he spoke about were things like getting a promotion, being healed, financial prosperity, getting good breaks, getting business opportunities. And I was listening to him and thinking, is that really all you have to offer? Does Jesus' resurrection only mean that I'll have a comfortable and prosperous life in this world? Our destiny does outweigh our history, but our destiny isn't a prosperous life in the here and now. That'll never, that'll never balance out. It'll never make up for the struggles and the sufferings of life in a world that's dominated by sin and death. Our destiny is the glory of God. In a few weeks we'll be exploring 2 Corinthians and we'll read Is that your hope or has your life been so overshadowed by the fear of death or by a preoccupation of the things of this life that you're seeking to find your security and your identity in the things of this world rather than in the risen Jesus? Contrary to the popular stereotype, having our eyes fixed on Jesus and eagerly Waiting for his promised return and looking forward to the horizon of our resurrection, it doesn't de- cause us to be detached from or irrelevant to this life. See verse 58 of our chapter, and I've skipped a lot of verses in between. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain what's the therefore therefore he's just been talking about the resurrection hope looking and longing to see Jesus and the work of the Lord here isn't just Christian ministry although it certainly includes that do you remember why God took Adam and put him in the garden it was to work it And keep it. We may see work as a necessary evil. And we might eagerly be looking forward to retirement. But work was the primary vocation of humanity. It was done under the Father's loving authority. It it wasn't laborious. It was full of restfulness and joy. So in the risen Christ, we are returned to our human vocation. That means we can give ourselves to whatever has been given to us by God, whether that falls into the category of secular or spiritual. That's really, though, a false distinction. We don't sometimes work for the Lord and sometimes for ourselves. All that we do, now that we're children of the Father, is the work of the Lord. We'll see him enabling and empowering all that we do and we can do everything that we do, whether even eating and drinking, to his glory. There's another quote here from Tim Keller uh, who has written a book called uh, Every Good Endeavour and he says this, the Christian faith gives us a new conception of work as the means by which God loves and cares for the world through us. Look at the places in the Bible that say that God gives every person their food. How does God do that? It's through our human work, from the simplest farm worker milking the cows to the truck driver bringing produce to market and the local grocer. God could feed us directly, but he chooses to do it through work. There are three important implications of this. First, it means all work, even the most menial tasks, has great dignity. In our work, we are God's hands and fingers, sustaining and caring for this world. Secondly, it means one of the main ways to please God in our work is simply to do work well. Some have called this the ministry of competence, what passengers read first from an airline pilot is not that they speak to them about Jesus but that they are a great, skillful pilot. Third, this means that Christians can and must have a deep appreciation for the work of those who work skillfully, but do not share our beliefs. Putting all these aspects together, we see that being a Christian leads us to see our work not as merely a way to earn money nor as a primary means of personal uh, advancement or achievement but truly a calling to serve God and to love our neighbour. The Gospel alone, the good news of the crucified, risen and reigning Jesus gives us this holistic outview, outlook on life. It enables to both live in the present and to look to the future. It's a future that we know. It doesn't end with the grave. It goes beyond into the eternal, an eternity that's infused with the glory of God in Jesus Christ.